Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. And today we have back on one of my very favorite guests, Mark Stiding, who is a pricing guru, pricing teacher. He is chief pricing educator at Impact Pricing. He is a good friend. He is a former pragmatic instructor who still does some instruction and really just the guy to go to with all of your pricing questions. Hi, Mark. Hey, Rebecca. It's great to be with you. Did I ever tell you why, why my title is chief pricing educator? I don't think so. When I first started my company, I called myself a CEO, and then everybody and their brother wants to send CEOs messages on LinkedIn. <laughs> I got tired of that. So you fired yourself as CEO and rehired yourself as chief pricing educator. Smart. Because no one knows what a chief pricing educator is. No. no one, nobody's searching for them. There you go. I like it. Clever. All right, Mark, today we're going to talk about something a little bit different. We've talked about all kinds of good things together, and we're going to talk about value journeys. And so I think probably the first logical question is, Mark, what the heck is a value journey? Great question. First quick plug, I'm in the middle of writing a new book. It's called Selling Value, How to Win More Deals at Higher Prices. And that's a big chunk of this book is this concept of value journeys and what are they? And if you think about it for a second, in our price class for Pragmatic, we always talk about how we're trying to price based on value. So how much value does a customer think they're going to get? Well, that's kind of a really interesting question. How much value does a customer think they're going to get? And how do they get to the point where they make the decision on how much value they're going to get? And it turns out that there are different paths that customers can take to say, here's the value that your product offers, or here's how I'm going to make the decision whether or not to buy your product based on value and, of course, based on price. So these value journeys are really just trying to understand how they make decisions, how they learn about our products so that we can then influence the purchase decision and hopefully win deals at higher prices. Super interesting, right? Because like in our pricing course, we talk about how you determine the value that a buyer should get. Like what calculation do you do to understand this is the value they get, therefore this is about where I'll price. But this is sort of the, the important inverse of that, which is how are they coming to that realization? Because one of the things we do talk about, like you could do your calculation and have a value of X, but like if it's not, if it doesn't resonate with them, it's not the same way they do it, it would be entirely different. So I could see the understanding how the process they go through to recognize that value not only, again, reinforcing the value point that helps you determine the price, but also allows you to understand their journey and how you can support it. And that's absolutely right. And the other point is, especially if you're in a B2B sales situation where you've got an individual salesperson, every person, or it's possible that different customers go through different journeys. Hmm. The ability to recognize the journey a customer is on influences what we as salespeople, or let's say marketing people, should be saying and talking to our customers about. But it's a great point too, right? That this kind of supported the value journey, just like the support of a buyer journey or the customer experience, it is done multiple ways, right? Both the marketing side and the sales side needs to understand this journey and the role they, they have in supporting it. I think in your book, which I know you're going to let me read when you're finished with, you've got three different journeys that you talk about. Yes? Yes. But before we do the journeys, we have to do the map. Okay. We have to all right. lay yes. the map out. Okay. Okay. Take our treasure so a map. map. Yes. It's just like a treasure map. It's a value map. <laughs> <laughs> so the value journey map 
is essentially a two by two quadrant. And across the bottom, we've put will I and which one. And these are concepts we teach in the price class, but most buyers go through both decisions. First, they answer the question, am I gonna buy something in this product category? Then after they said yes, they go on to say, okay, which one am I gonna go buy? So imagine that you're gonna buy a new car. Well, are you gonna buy a new car? First, you have to say, yes, I'm gonna go buy a new car. Then you decide to go shopping and you're gonna go figure out which new car you wanna buy. So that's the value journey on the x-axis or the horizontal axis, where typically buyers go from will I to which one. Then but sometimes on the vertical, they'll, they'll just do the will I, right? There are a certain set of product categories that is just will I. But to your point, typically it's a two-part decision. Yeah. So not only is it sometimes the category, but it's also sometimes the situation or um, just that customer. They're just going to do the will I. And that's a really important part of the story we're about to tell, which we'll get there. The second part of the story, which is the Y axis, the, the vertical axis, that is, are they doing, is a customer doing this by themselves or with a salesperson's help? And this is really important if you're going to talk about salespeople and how salespeople can help their customers. Now, let's go back to the new car example for a second. Once you've decided to buy a new car, trust me, you're not walking into a car dealer saying, tell me about your cars. You're going to go online and figure out which brands make sense, which models may make sense. You're going to do a bunch of research before you ever go talk to a salesperson. Right? Most of us do because we hate talking to salespeople, right? We don't want them to try to twist our arm into buying something we don't need or haven't decided on yet. So we do a lot of that research. The key question is what happens before they talk to our sales team? What happens after they talk to our sales team? And in both of those cases, they're trying to learn about the value of our product. And that's exactly what we're talking about in this whole value journey map is how do they learn about the value? All right. So just to sum up for those visualizing why they're driving, right? We've got a four square on the bottom. It's got will I and which one sort of your left and right. And your top and bottom is without sales for and with sales in that discussion. And again, in both cases, they can move sort of up to down and left to right, right? They may not always be working with sales. It may come later in the process. They go from will I to a which one spot. And that's kind of the whole point of the map is how is it that buyers are going to move through that map? Because they're not starting in one place. They're almost always starting in the upper left-hand corner, right? So somehow we're going to realize we have a problem. We need to go solve that problem. We say, hey, I think I'm going to buy a new car. I think I'm going to buy a new refrigerator. I think I'm going to buy a whatever it is. We've said, hey, I've got this problem. Let me go buy something to go solve my problem. So that's the, the realized quadrant. And we've done that without anybody telling us. But by the way, Sometimes salespeople cold call and try to get you to need something or realize you have a need. So it's possible that salespeople are in that space, but rarely, rarely does that happen. And so usually we're making a will I decision, or at least we're realizing it at the beginning just by ourselves, just as a, as a buyer. And then probably the most common of all the journeys, and it's the one that we think of most often, it's called the analyze journey. And in the analyze journey, we said, hey, I need a new car. Then we go out on the internet and we do a ton of research. So what we just did was we personally, we ourselves as buyers, we moved from the will I, yes, I need a new car, to the which one without ever talking to a salesperson. 
So we're now doing a bunch of research online. We're trying to figure out what makes sense, comparing different models, doing as much, learning as much as we possibly can. And then eventually we say, okay, I have to go talk to a salesperson. So now we go to a dealer or two or three. And so suddenly we move down on the map. And when we move down to the map, we're talking to salespeople. The real question is what should salespeople be having a conversation about? And at that point in time, it really makes sense to A, understand what problems they're trying to solve, but B, be emphasizing the things that our product does well that our competitors' products don't do well. Because we know this buyer is making a which one decision. They're trying to decide between buying my product and somebody else's product. So I want them to buy mine over someone else's. As soon as I know what I'm competing with, I'm pushing the things that we're better at than our competitors are. So that's the first of our three journeys, probably the most common. That's the one that we think all of our buyers go on. However, it's not. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Okay. So I guess we're going to get back to this later, but I'm intrigued by the idea that not everybody does or where they spend times and, and what that might be determined by. But let's go through the three journeys, right? We have an analytical one, very, very much a Mark. If you know Mark, he's very analytical. So he's done all of his research. Then he goes in. You guys can't see him, but I saw his body language when he said he had to talk to sales. Many people looked for sales for that help. You could see he was like, that's, that's the last piece. I must do. <laughs> but let's talk about the other journey, other two journeys. So give me another journey. Okay. So the, the next one that we want to think about is we'll call it the relationship journey. Now, the relationship journey, imagine that you have a problem. You've realized, hey, I need to get a new car. Uh, let's make it uh, you just got a new job as a realtor. Your very first job as a realtor. You have a realtor mentor, and the realtor mentor says to you, you know, you really need a new car. I really like Bob down at Lexus. Why don't you go talk to Bob? And so you walk into Bob at Lexus. You're not out shopping for all these different brands. You walk in and you talk to Bob at Lexus. And Bob starts talking to you. You're, we're still in the will I. Am I going to buy a new car? I'm not really sure. And Bob starts talking to you about the value of having a good, clean, professional, branded car. And it makes it look like you're successful as a realtor. And so you're thinking, yeah, okay, he's convinced me I really need to get a new car. And then you do the thing that you really should do. And you say, thank you, Bob. I really appreciate the help. I got to go shop around a little bit. And so you go to a few other dealers. Now, what was important about that, and by the way, now you're shifting over into that which one decision. You're looking at you know, BMW or Mercedes or you know, whatever other brands you might consider if you wanna look like a successful realtor. Now, the, the good news is when Bob first talked to you, you were not considering competitive products. What Bob was talking to you about wasn't, how is my product better than my competitor's products? He was talking to you about what's the problem you're trying to solve and why would buying a product like this help you solve the problem? So Bob built a relationship with you. He helped you understand the value of, the, of having a great car as a realtor. And eventually you said, okay, I need to go shop around, but guess what? You really like Bob. Bob's a good guy. Bob, he is, he's a really nice guy. <laughs> He's actually built himself a competitive advantage because he's been helpful to you. And none of those other salespeople are going to talk to you about why does having a great car as a realtor help you? 
they're going to be trying to convince you, you got to buy my car instead of Bob's car. And so in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, yeah, I like that Bob guy. I'm going to go back and talk to him and, and see what's going on. So Bob has actually built himself an advantage to where he can probably win this deal at a price higher than if you just came in as an analytical buyer because mm. he built the relationship. The key for Bob was knowing that when you walked in the door, you weren't shopping for other products. You were just trying to figure out, does this make sense? Is this the right product for me? Do I need to make this type of decision? And he's acting as your personal coach. He's helping you make a really important, smart decision. So the journeys are in isolation. You don't move from one journey to the other. You go through one of these journey paths. So in the first case, the big difference is that I answered the will I question without help, right? I did the will I by myself, and then I started to look for the which ones by myself, and then I came in and, and interacted. In this case, the salesperson helped me with the will I. The answer is yes, I'm going to go out and extend that and say, okay, which one should I do? But I'm going to have a preference for my good friend, Bob, all along, right? So let's talk about then the third journey. What is another the third, path? The third journey is my favorite journey. And in the third journey, we call this one a trust journey. So once again, you're a realtor, a brand new realtor. Your mentor says to you, you know, you really need to get a new car. That beater you're driving is not going to look very good when you take clients out. And so um, I recommend go talk to Bob over at Lexus. Uh, Bob's a really good guy. He'll, he'll do well for you. And you go to the Lexus dealership and you talk to Bob and Bob talks to you about why it's really important. And you say, okay, Bob, would you sell me a car, please? And you buy the car and you never shopped around for competitive alternatives. In other words, all you did was make a will I decision. One of the things you learn in the pragmatic class is when people are making a will I decision, price is not driving that decision people are not as price sensitive. Knowing that they didn't go shop around says, Bob doesn't have to give you much of a discount at all to get you to buy the product because you're already bought into Bob, the Lexus, the, the whole ecosystem that they're trying to sell you. Uh, and so to me, this is the best journey of all because we don't have any competition. So everybody loves to deal with no competition, right? But in this case, did Bob do anything differently? between a, a trust journey or a relationship journey. Or in the story you told me, I got trust from a third party. It was someone else. It was my wonderful realtor coach advisor who said, you can trust Bob. Is that always the case? Or is there something Bob can do differently in order to keep, to keep you from going to a which one decision? Okay, fantastic question. There are different ways that people can build trust up to decide that they're gonna go on a trust journey. One just could be, I'm too busy, I don't wanna shop around, so I'm gonna buy something at the first place I go to. So that was a trust journey, even though it wasn't really trust, it was in a way, but it wasn't this deep level of trust. It could would it take something bad for you to pull away, right? You would've, you could've still been like, nope, nope, this guy, <clears throat> Hank, is not trustworthy, but your instinct is let's just get it done, okay? Yep, yep. It could be that I bought a car from Bob four years ago, it's time for me to buy a new car. Really liked him the last time. I'm just going to go buy another car. So there are different reasons why we might have built up trust or we might be doing a trust relationship. The key popcorn at a movie theater is a trust journey, right? Because I walk in and I ask myself, am I going to buy popcorn today or not? I'm not going to say, well, I could buy popcorn here or popcorn somewhere else. 
even though that's a will I product or will I situation, we know that you're not going to have a competitive alternative. So that is a trust journey. It's just, am I going to buy it or not? So there are many different reasons why we might be on a trust journey. Mm. Uh, but the question that you asked, which I thought was fabulous, is what's Bob doing? Is Bob doing anything different between a trust journey, a relationship journey, and an analytical journey? And so the key answer is no. What Bob should be doing is every time a customer, a potential customer walks in the door, he should treat them like they're a trust journey. He should be talking to them about what problems you're trying to solve. Um, how does my product or product category help you solve the problem? We're never even going to mention a competitor exists. And then when the customer says to us or says to Bob, Bob, thank you. You've been so helpful. I really need to go over and talk to the Mercedes dealer and see what they have. All of a sudden, Bob's mindset shifts from knowing that I have to talk about what are the problems I'm trying to solve to talking about why is my product better than a Mercedes, better than the competitive alternative. So the conversation Bob is having is very different. In a trust journey, they never make that switch. In a relationship journey, they get to make that switch that says, mm -hmm. I'm gonna talk about why my product is better. Quick story, if I may. Of course. I was, I was at the Reno Rodeo. I go to the Reno Rodeo every year, every other year, something like that. And we were there, my, Carol and I were there, Carol's my wife. Uh, Carol and I were there uh, several years ago and they've got this big pavilion where they're trying to sell things before the rodeo starts. And, and uh, I've been smoking meats for a long time. And as we're walking through this pavilion, there's a, a pellet fed smoker, wood pellet fed smoker there. And I'd never heard of these before. And the, was kind of looking and I stopped in, I chatted with the guy for a little bit and I was like, so what is this? And he says, oh, this is a wood pellet, uh, wood pellet fed smoker. Do you have a smoker? And I go, yeah, I smoke. I have a, I have a cook shack. And he goes, yeah, what do you think of it? I said, it's interesting. A cook shack looks like a refrigerator. You put your meat in it, you throw in a few wet wood pellets and you know, 12 hours later, the meat comes out. It tastes pretty good, but I never got that beautiful pink smoke ring that you always see on TV and, and, uh, and the temperature didn't hold constantly. So the guy says to me, he goes, yeah, you know, we, uh, we maintain the temperature and the heat just with burning these little wood pellets. And so when you get done, you're going to get much nicer smoke flavor. You're going to have that beautiful smoke ring you expect. I'm thinking, I need this, right? I need this. And the salesperson, he sees the, the anticipation, the temptation on my face. And he says, um, he's, he's going to go for the clothes now. He says, this is just as good as a Traeger, oh. much less expensive. And I said, what's I a Traeger? Look at a Traeger. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I said, Whoa. I said, thank you very much. Let me, uh, let me think about it. And I'll get back to you. So I went home, I Googled Traeger, biggest brand name in the industry. Of course, I bought a Traeger. Right? I love my Traeger, but the point of the story is the salesperson was treating me like I was on a, on a trust journey right up to the very end. And then they said, hey, guess what? There's this competitor out there. You should go look at this competitor. He didn't say those words, but that's what I heard. Now think about it, what a salesperson should be doing, right? We should be doing exactly what the salesperson did up to the end. We should be talking about what are the problems you're trying to solve? How does our product help you solve those problems? If we go for the close, it's, hey, you wanna buy my product now, right? Let's get the order placed, let's get it going. 
Um, but it's never, here's this competitor. Now, the question that I like to ask to know, is my buyer on a trust journey or on an analytical journey or relationship journey, is I ask the following question. If you don't buy this, what are you going to do? Now, notice I didn't say whose product you're going to buy, what are you going to buy? I said, what are you going to do? The implication is maybe there's no alternative. Maybe you can't do anything except buy my product. That is great. It also really helps you understand, like you said, where they are in the process, where, what are they considering in a way that doesn't, it's not the same as are you looking at someone else or doesn't lead them in any particular direction. One of the other things I think is super interesting about the, the journeys that you talk about and the trust journey is while, as your point is, that Bob didn't necessarily do anything differently when you came to him as a salesperson. The ability of other factors to play into the trust journey and to key up or queue up Bob for success is pretty high, right? What can the product itself do? Marketing, word of mouth, the realtor example. All of those are aspects that help with that trust journey, help it feel like there's nowhere else you go where that relationship came up prior to sales. And I think that's a, another really neat way of showing the value and showing how you can help feed it into a will I dis- decision and by building trust even prior to the sales process. I think that's brilliant. And think about marketing for a second. I mean, something that you might know a little bit about. <laughs> I think about marketing a for a second. <laughs> In the world of marketing, what are the messages you want to deliver? Do you want to deliver messages that say, you have a problem, come talk to us about how to solve the problem? In other words, down the trust journey. Mm -hmm. Or do you want to deliver messages that say, hey, our product is the best way to go solve this problem. We're better than X, Y, and Z. Come see us because we can do it better. That's truly a marketing decision. And as a marketing decision, you've decided which side of that path you're hoping people go down. Uh, you're pushing people in in the latter example you're pushing people to the which one or to the to the analytical journey you're setting it up both that you are not in the position of strength and that you are, are that you you set up the conversation for them to be price sensitive and you set up a conversation for them to think of you in and starting to feel like a commodity sense right because you're like let me compare and it's like there isn't a comparison now obviously there are some products that's harder to pull off on than others but I don't think it's necessarily impossible for any of them. I think that's absolutely right. And, and I would say that if you had a product where, you know, 99% of the time people are going to compare you to this one other competitor, it doesn't hurt to say, here's why we're better than this competitor, right? Especially if you're not the leading brand and they're the leading brand, then I could see why my marketing might do that. But, I dislike uh, but those if- posts immensely. But that's because you're usually pointing at us. So I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that implies there's competition to you guys. I don't know. No, there there's is, not is there? because we would never do one of this. But also as a buyer outside <laughs> of my category, I find they're always disingenuous, right? It's sort of like, a, you know, it's like your classic competitor checklist where all our smiles and all there's are grumpy pants. And, and the only factors you put on that list are the ones you excel at. I find them very difficult Unless it's like a third party, you know, this is why we go to consumer reports sometimes when we're all making big purchases is it that feels like a third party look at those comparisons. But that is my own personal shopping preference. (laughs) 
Yes. I would say if I were going to do it more genuinely, by the way, I'm not advertising or not advocating doing this by any means, right? But I were going to say if I were going to do it more genuinely, it would be on the single huge differentiator I have in my mm. marketplace right. to say, here's why you care about us. That's right. It's not a checklist of feature by feature comparison. It's the one, it is your distinctive competency that you are yes. summing up and pointing to. That's a, that's a much better way of, of thinking about it. And that is something I would expect someone to do. I mean, that's, that's kind of what you want to build all your messaging around. And that is how you're showing it pieces. It's not like, well, we do ours on Tuesdays and they do this with whatever. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely right. And I love the fact you brought in distinctive competencies. So, okay. So we've got three different buyer value journeys. So knowing that, I would think there's a couple of things that we would want to be important about those, why it's important to know that there are different value journeys, right? It's know which one they're on. So you're supporting them correctly. When in doubt, assume and act as if it's a trust journey until it's shown differently, right? With your great question, the, if you don't buy this, what are you going to do? Two, so that's the first one, right? What so, else does this way, construct give us? I think that's a rule, Right. As a okay. salesperson, your rule should be always assume your buyer's on a trust journey until you know otherwise. And I think that's true with sales, but again, everything that supports it the same way, right? The marketing team, the product team, you know, we, all of the product teams, we all love our features sometimes, right? And so we're going to lead in the gate with those things. And that is a which one, right? And so supporting that and that sales enablement perspective to make sure that we're also treating it as a trust, I think is, is key. So not just for our sales partners, but across. Yeah, I think the other thing, and, and we've talked about this, maybe we haven't made it the key point or a key point, and that is the conversations we have with our buyers are very different between will I and which one. The information a buyer is looking for in a will I, in the will I side of this map is, should I spend money to go solve this problem or not? Do I have a problem that's worthy of my budget? And as soon as they switch to the which one, the information they're looking for is which product should I buy? Where am I going to get the most bang for my buck? Uh, which is most effective for me? So they're looking for different information in those two sides of the journey. We had better be giving them different information on, the, on those two sides of the journey. And of course, one of the reasons that you're passionate about this idea, right, is the pricing power you have in these different journeys is very, very different. And the more it's a trust journey or a relationship journey, the less pricing pressure and discounts you're going you're gonna to have to take. That's absolutely right. And I think you could articulate or argue that trust journey is the highest willingness to pay. Relationship journey is the second highest. And by far, the analytical journey is the lowest willingness to pay. So if I had a choice and I could just find buyers who are on trust journeys, that's all I would focus on. But obviously, we can't. We, we sell to everybody our job needs to be to recognize it. Mm. And also to set up our pricing to give us flexibility in those situations, right? Something car dealerships do very well, but some of us have a harder ability to adjust our pricing when we know we've got someone at will I with which one. And so I think that's another really interesting way of looking at it is having packaging or other options available that let you recognize and then leverage the type of journey that they're on. Yep, that is absolutely right. Let me ask a marketing question. And this is a stupid question because I don't know the answer and hopefully you do and cut this out if it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dramatic pause. Everyone will be like, oh, she really didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Skipping salespeople. Let's pretend like we have a product that people are going to buy off the internet. Okay. 
could I be able to look at cookies on my customer's web computer to know if they'd been looking at my competitor's sites or not? And by that, infer whether they're making a will I decision or which one decision? So, yes, we certainly can track whether or not they have gone to a competitor site. And there are probably systems far more advanced that can then return to you that person's name and let you like follow the journey, right? We use those kind of things or, or marketing people in general to do retargeting. Like I know you went to Acme Auto's website, so now you're going to see lots and lots of digital ads throughout your life about Becky's Auto's site, right? Because I know you're interested in that. But I don't know in that case, yes. So making that actionable down to the individual that I know it was Mark who did this and then came this, I could actually, because I would know what ad you clicked on. And that ad would have told me that you were at Acme. And so then immediately when you came into my shopping cart, I could show you a different level of discount. And a different set of information yes. is the key. It's probably, yes, both of those. Very true, right? I could, I could know that we're on a different comparison piece. Why, yes, yes, I could. Nice. Our, so I should rename my book Marketing Value. Well, you know, actually, it's funny is because I do think that, and this may be because this is an area you target a lot, but I do think this concept plays far outside the sales group and is a really important part on the marketing side, but also to some degree on the product side, certainly product marketing and to some degree on product management is knowing what can the entire organization and operation do in order to ensure that the most amount of times we are having trust conversations. And then again, like we talked about pricing and packaging and all of those things that product would do so that when we have both kinds, we have options to, to offer both kinds that let us optimize sort of what we could get from each journey. Nice. And so here's another one. Boy, we're, we're actually making good stuff up as we go. Can I tell you I that? know. Wait to the second part of the book. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I've heard people say before, but I'd never put it relative to this and that is sometimes when you have a good, better, best offering, people realize they're making a choice between three. And so they don't have to go make a choice between you and a competitive alternative. Ooh, interesting. I was so going to actually ask you the flip side is if I had a trust relationship and then they have to decide amongst mine, does that already make them start thinking they selecting and then they start selecting outside of mine, right? Like, could it go the other way? Where I'm like, yes, I love Bob. And then Bob's like, do you want the LX, the EX, or the SX? And I start to overthink it. And there's all these things. And then I think, well, maybe I should, while I'm analyzing options, maybe I should analyze more. Well, what you just said, which I think is true, is if we make decisions hard for buyers, mm. they tend not to make decisions. And so, because they don't, here's a big rule. People don't want to make a mistake, mm. especially when they're paying big money. And so if it's hard to make a decision, they're going to go figure out how do I make an easier decision? Or I just don't make a decision, right? Or, or I just don't. But you're saying that a, a good, better, best could give you the feeling that you did due diligence, almost permission. You did a certain level of due diligence you can feel good about in selecting which version you have in that trust. So you didn't blindly go and buy. Yeah, no, I could see I could see both ways. Yep. And, and the good news is we know we're, you're going to buy the one in the middle, so that's okay. Another question for you. When we talk about B2B purchases and some of our own personal purchases, right, there are multiple buyer personas at play. I would suspect that you would have situations where maybe there is a new marketing automation solution 
from a company who I just adore and I, I have a lot of trust in them. They've got this spot. I talk to them. I'm ready to go. But a different part, my, my partner in crime over here, my CTO needs to come and also do validation. And his process, though, would be an analytics journey, both going through different processes in order to reach one single purchase decision. Yes. And, and what's probably going to happen is that you'll end up on a relationship journey. You may love this company's product, whatever it happens to be, but you're going to have to look at the competitive alternatives mm -hmm. because the CTO or the CFO is going to have said, hey, how does this compare to this other company? And so you won't have had a choice. The key for us is understanding that uh, you personally are on a relationship journey and I, want, and I want to help you with that. Where the CTO might be on this analytical journey, I need to help him with that as I'm talking to the CTO. The thing about the story that you're telling me right now, which I think though is super valuable, is procurement mm. probably had no power. And, and this is actually, it's, it's in the book as well, but it's a really important point that people have to learn. And that is sometimes procurement people have a lot of power. Sometimes procurement people don't have a lot of power. And usually when we have a committee of people who are buying something, so major investment, major decision, the decision was made before it made it into procurements on a procurement's desk. Although procurement's going to pretend there are three other competitors and they're all less expensive than you and you've got to cut your price if you expect to win this deal, but they're not telling you the truth. The decision was already made. On the other hand, there are a lot of products that procurement buys where they have all the power. They've been said, here are two or three different sources of this product. Go buy the one that you think is best for us that's most cost-effective or performance-wise. And as a salesperson, our job has to be to recognize when does procurement have power and when do they not have power? Because every procurement person pretends to have power. Yes. And I, I would like to apologize to all of our procurement listeners because I made the face about procurement that Mark made about sales. And that's not fair. Procurement plays an important role. Uh, but you can tell <laughs> where my pain point has been in the, uh, when, I, when I've led sales teams. Oh, procurement. But you're right. And I think it's, again, it's an important signal to recognize a lot. But all of these is to recognize where they are, the power they have and the interest they have so that you don't sell against yourself to some extent. Right. I mean, if if procurement has power, then you've got to treat it as such. Uh, and they're playing an important role in that organization. And it's an important place for you to partner with to move forward. If they don't, then you don't have to do the gifts in the same way. Yep. And so I want to bring this back to the concept of value, because everything I do is around this concept of value. And a procurement person, if they've been told what to buy, and we happen to know that our product has a lot of value, we don't really have to give a discount or we don't have to give much to a procurement person to get the acquisition because the value is there and we've already sold the value to the people who are going to recognize it. On the other hand, if procurement's uh, sourcing a component for a product and they've got uh, two sources for it, value to that procurement agent, they're the one who's just trying to decide what's value. And they're sitting there saying, well, how does your price compare to the competitor's price? And what do you give me the competitor doesn't? And that's to them, that's value. And we have to recognize that value decision and sell to that value decision. Well, speaking of value, Mark, I always value our conversations. And you probably know what my last question is. If you could have people listening doing two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would it be? 
I would have said pre-order my book, but it's not available yet. So don't do that. (laughs) Step one, I think the first thing I would like people to do is think really, really hard about the difference between will I decisions and which one decisions. I would like you to go uh, find five different customers that didn't look for a competitive alternative when they bought your product and figure out why, what was the situation, what happened, and then see if in the future we can recognize that before the fact instead of after the fact. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a huge thing. And then the other one I would ask people to do is try to define the conversation between a will I sales conversation and a which one sales conversation. What's the information you think your buyers are looking for when they're making the will I decision? And what's the information you think they're looking for when they're making the which one decision? The will I, which one is one of my absolute favorite parts about the price course. And one of my favorite things when we were putting it together that you taught me. So I love the extension of this and the ability to put it in action in so many different ways. And not just in the price, but what we build, how we market it, how we sell it. Good stuff. Cool. Thank Thank you, you, Rebecca. When you finish the book, I'll have you on again. And then you can save your... (laughs) I think you can hear more. Plus, I just like having you. All right. Thank you, Mark. Always a pleasure having you on the show. It is always a fun to be here with you. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product your company, and your career.